as we continue <clears throat> our study through Galatians and through the New Testament. And this morning, Paul is going to speak about growing up. And the title this morning is, When Will You Grow Up? That is, grow up in the Lord. Grow up in the Spirit. Grow up in our relationship with God. So Paul has shown the foolishness of the Judaizers who wanted to put believers back under the law of Moses in our last chapter. He said, we are the seed of Abraham, and the law has nothing to do with us at all. It has more to do with us than it had to do with Abraham, who was brought into God's blessings on the basis of his faith in God's promise concerning the seed hundreds of years before Sinai brought everyone under the law. Here Paul takes the discussion now to a higher level. We used to be in bondage to rules and regulations. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't eat this, you can't do, eat that, you can't drink this, you can't drink that. You can't worship on these days, you need to worship on... Just one rule after another. God sent his son to save those who were in bondage. So that we might be adopted as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So Paul, Paul is saying, are, are, are you wanting to trade your former uh, bondage to heathenism for bondage to Judaism? Paul says, I'm afraid for you in case somehow what I've done for you, I did in vain. In other words, he says, I'm worried about you. He says, when I came and I preached the gospel to you and I taught you the word of God and I taught you about the salvation in Jesus Christ, he says, I pray that, that I did that for nothing if you're going to go back to the law. Another illustration Paul uses to show the madness of mixing law with grace is the experience of a child before he's legally treated as a mature adult son. Let's begin in chapter 4 with verses 1 through 3. And Paul says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is a master of all, but is under guardians and stewards under the time appointed by the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Paul says, think about it like this. <clears throat> if a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children... Those children aren't much better off than the slaves until they grow up, even though they are actually, uh, even though they actually own everything that their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. In a Roman home, servants were in charge of different things that were owned by the master. Now, some were in charge of the belongings, some were in charge of livestock, others were in charge of keeping books for him, and others were in, were, uh, in charge of his children. When a baby was born in the home, the servants would take care of that baby. They would dress him in clothes that that didn't make him look any different from the children of the servants that he was playing with. And he had to obey the servants just like the other children did. 
And at an appointed time, the father promotes the child to a mature position where the child exercises authority and has a higher position in the home than any other servant or guardian. So this is the first application in Paul's analogy. First, as the immature child is under guardians and stewards, like he said in verse 2. So is the unsaved in bondage to the principles of the world, which represented the Jew, Judaism and its legal duties to the Gentiles, and the observances of pagan rituals and religions. Second, salvation resulted in a change of position for the redeemed and is described in the next point. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So at the time decided by God, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who had a perfect humanity. He, he, was, he, was, uh, he also was God manifest in the flesh. So now, what was God's purpose in sending his son? Look at verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. You see, the law never made anyone a son to God. And that they might receive the adoption of sons, Paul said. Now, adoption has a different meaning than what it means today. We think about, when we think about adoption today, we think about a couple that may not have children of their own. So they go to an adoption agency and they find a child that they want to adopt, you know, bring them into, bring him into their family, and they go through all the legal procedures that are needed. When the child becomes theirs, it's called adoption. But the Roman custom in Paul's day was to adopt one's own son. A believer is placed in the family of God as a full-grown son, capable of understanding divine truth. God has revealed divine truth to us by the Spirit, His Spirit. This means that the truth in the Word of God can only be interpreted by the Holy Spirit. And until He interprets it, He can't understand it. The Holy Spirit alone can interpret the Word of God for us. That's what makes the difference today in certain men. You know, you, as an unbeliever and you try to pick up the Bible, you know, you say, I've always wanted to read the Bible. And you pick it up <clears throat> and you, try, you read it and you try to understand it. You can't. You don't because there's a spirit in you that's missing. And that's the Holy Spirit. He's the one who authored the scriptures. He teaches us the scriptures. And I shared this before when I went in the Air Force and one of the things they gave me was, was, a, was a Bible. And I said, oh, this is great. I've always wanted to read the Bible. And, uh, you know, and, and one night I, I picked it up and I opened it up to Genesis chapter 1. And I got about halfway through and I closed it up and said, this makes no sense to me. I can't understand. Who would want to read this? It makes no sense. And that's because I didn't have the Spirit of God. I was missing that, that, that the Holy Spirit that would, you know, and, but as I read it now, it makes all the sense in the world because the Spirit of God dwells in me and he's, in, he's able to, you know, to uh, tell me and explain and understand what's going on, what the Bible says. A man can be very intelligent and he can learn all about history, all about science and archaeology and language. He can become an expert in Hebrew and in Greek. 
But you know what? He can still miss the meaning of the word of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the teacher. And if you want to know about Jesus Christ, only the Holy Spirit can reveal him to you. Even a mature Christian who's been in the word of God for years is helpless. Helpless in studying the Bible as a newborn baby in Christ because the Holy Spirit will have to teach them both. If you're a new believer, the same Holy Spirit who is teaching me can teach you. If you're, if you're God's child, he has brought you into the position of a full-grown son, into the adoption. And the Holy Spirit will lead you and guide you in all truth if you want to know it. And if you're willing to let him be your teacher. This brings us to another thing that faith in Christ does for us that the law could never do. And that is the experience of being sons of God, sons and daughters of God. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Now here, notice in verse 6, and you can mark it down there, make a note. We see the Trinity involved in our spiritual experience. God the Father sent the Son Christ to die for us, and God the Son sent His Spirit to live in us. The person who has received the adoption, the adoption of adult sonship possesses two, possesses two important benefits. The first one is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And one of the requirements to be a child of God, and this is important to understand and to know, one of the requirements to be a child of God is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you are not a child of God. It doesn't matter how much you go to church, how much you read, how much you praise. And, and so, if you don't have the Spirit, Paul said in Romans 8 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And that's why it's, it's through the new birth becoming born again that you receive the, the Holy Spirit. The second benefit is relationship through the Holy Spirit. Paul said, crying out, Abba, Father. The word Abba is Father in Aramaic. It's the equivalent of Daddy. The, the, the Heavenly Father is our Daddy, our Father. That shows the intimacy of that relationship. The relationship with God becomes close and compassionate through the adoption of sons, that is, it, it, by salvation. And to the saved, God becomes the loving father, their, their daddy, their spiritual daddy that they can have fellowship with. Verse 7. But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. Another important benefit for being adopted as adult sons is the realization of being an heir. And to be eligible for inheritance, you must get it through Jesus Christ. The law doesn't qualify you for this inheritance. Being adopted as an adult son is the result of the work of Jesus Christ, not the law. Then you're an heir of God. And there's no one greater to be an heir to than God. No one has wealth like God. And the infinite wealth of, of the Father, it can't be realized by the finite mind. Because it's an inheritance that exceeds all inheritances. Verse 8. 
But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not God's. What really happened when the Galatians turned from, the great, from grace to law? Well, for starters, they gave up freedom for bondage. When they were ignorant sinners, they had served their false gods. And they experienced the tragedy of this pagan slavery. So their former religion was a religion of ignorance. Paul says, when you did not know God. If you don't know someone, you won't know how to treat them. A king should be treated better than a servant. But if you don't know the king, you may treat him no better than you treat a servant. The Galatians were ignorant of the true and living God until the gospel came. So they hadn't honored God. Paul said, you guys, because you didn't know God, you serve those which are not gods. The Galatians did not worship the true and living God. They worshiped false gods as they, as they served the false gods. Whom you worship is whom you will serve. Jesus informed Satan of this when Satan asked Jesus to worship him. Paul, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 14, You must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Verse 9. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? When the Galatians turned to Jesus, their devotion changed from false gods to the true God. And this gave them two great blessings. First, when you get saved, you come to know God like never before. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you experience the grace of God in salvation, you're taught, you're instructed. Titus said in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, For the grace of God has been revealed bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed, taught, to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. You see, it's by the grace of God, when we come to Christ, when we get saved, that we're instructed. That's when we're taught to turn from the godless living that we had been living apart from Christ. To, to, to stop being involved in sinful pleasures. This is, this is how our life changes. When the Holy Spirit begins to say, hey, that's not good for you. That's not pleasing to God. No man has to tell me anything when it comes to, to that, that what I need to do because the scriptures tell me. You know, when people get saved and you, you see them begin to change, nobody had to tell them. It's because the Holy Spirit living in them now instructs them. Instructs them to, to, to turn from godless living and to turn from sinful pleasures and begin to do the things that are pleasing to God. The second blessing is now you are known of God. Speaking of our relationship to God, God knows all people. And he knows who have a special personal relationship with him. And remember when Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, he said, not everybody who calls me Lord is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Just because you say God and Lord and Jesus Christ and, and you call him your Lord and you call him your God and, and you, you say that, you know, things that, that you know about the Bible does not guarantee your interest into heaven. 
And then, and then, then they, they wonder why Jesus tells them, hey, I never knew you were Lord. I, you know, I, you're my Lord. I called you Lord, my master, my God. I went to church. I read the Bible. I did this in your name. I did all these things in your name. And Jesus said, I never knew you. I never knew you. And that's speaking in terms of a personal relationship with him. You might fool others about salvation, about your salvation, but you'll never fool the Lord. Because 2 Timothy 2.19, he said, Paul said, the Lord knows those who are his. He knows if you're a real believer. He knows if you're his child or if you're just a pretender. Jesus said in John 10, 27, my sheep listen to my voice. He says, I know them and they follow me. Now notice when he says, my sheep listen to my voice, he's not just, he, he's, talking, he's talking about particular sheep here. How is he talking about particular sheep? Well, he says, my, my sheep listen to my voice. And then he says, I know them. Who's them? Those who listen to his voice. He says, and they. Notice he, those particular words, them and they. He's singling out certain sheep. Because in general, all sheep think, well, you know, uh, th that they follow him. That my sheep listen to my voice. They don't all listen to his voice. Because the ones they, that do, they follow him. Verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. The law had many observances. And the Galatians, man, they were practicing them again because of the influence of these Judaizers, that is, these legalist teachers who insisted that these observances had to be kept in order to be saved. Verse 11. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Once again, it was so discouraging to Paul. He's wondering if, if, you know, all of my preaching and teaching and loving them and all of this, did I do this all in vain? Anytime somebody works hard and doesn't see any results, man, they wonder, what did I do wrong? Did I do everything that I needed to do? Verse 12 says, Brethren, I urge you to become like me or became, or be, because, uh, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. He's saying, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live like I do in freedom from these things because I have become like you Gentiles, free from those laws. So this was a request to return to their former ways when Paul was with them. And they responded well to the gospel. He said, you didn't injure me at all. You didn't hurt my feelings. Even though they were told, uh, they, even though they were cold towards Paul, he wouldn't admit he was hurt by them. They couldn't accuse him of being upset because they turned against him. He wasn't one of those thin-skinned Christians who had a, a pity party every time his feelings got hurt. He could deal with their problem. He could deal with the problem uh, with love. He loved them. And that overrode, again, any hurt feelings that he might have experienced. Paul faced a lot of difficulties in serving the Lord. And, you know, there weren't just the persecutions. 
He had some serious physical problems as well. And in those days, travel was really hard. Travel was hard, and, it, and you know what? The travel conditions would cause people to contract many different diseases. When Paul ministered to the churches in Galatia, he did so while having some physical ailments, some serious physical ailments. Look at verse 13 and 14. You know that because of my physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not desire or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Paul wasn't free from the trials because he was serving God. Just because we serve the Lord faithfully does not mean we're not going to get sick or we're not going to have any difficulties in our serving. Because trials are a part of the work. But those trials are intended to help us grow in our faith. But Paul didn't let those difficulties stop him. When we read the book of Acts regarding his missionary trips, it emphasizes his dedication to serving the Lord no matter what the conditions were. If you're going to serve the Lord well or, and much, you'll have to do a lot of the serving in conditions that are far from perfect. And this reminds us, this reminder is to discredit the criticisms that the false teachers made against Paul. They received Paul with much respect. They didn't treat him disrespectfully like the legalists did, but highly respected Paul. Verse 15. What, what then was the, was the blessing that you enjoyed? For I bear witness that if possible, you have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So the Galatians' affection was so strong for Paul when he was ministering to them. He said, I believe that you guys would have plucked out your own eyes to help me in my time of trouble. You see, this tells us how much the Galatians respected, admired, and loved Paul. It also tells us that Paul's infirmity in the flesh may have been an eye problem, an eye disease that was common in the land. And it was characterized by excessive pus that runs out of his eyes. He also may have had epilepsy and mal or malaria. Verse 16. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? This is a powerful verse. Have I therefore become your enemy because I have told you the truth? As you know, a lot of people do not want the preacher to tell the truth from the pulpit. They'd much rather have the preacher say something flattering. Make me feel good about myself. Don't tell me I'm a sinner. Don't tell me that I, I, I need to confess my sins. Don't tell me I need to be saved and, and live a holy life. There's a lot of liberal theology today coming from the pulpits rather than the preaching of the truth of the word of God. Of course, I don't have to tell you that. You know that. You see it. Preaching the truth is hard sometimes. And it doesn't always make friends for you. It may make a lot of enemies, more enemies than friends. And some preachers, though, they compromise on the truth in order to gain friends and to keep their congregation. And as we're, as we're going to see in these last days, the more churches that preach 
the truth of the word of God and stand on the truth of the word of God, those churches are going to get smaller and smaller and smaller because too many people are, are giving in to the pressures of this world, to the popularity of this world. And, and therefore, the church will be compromised. Heresy is often received more eagerly than truth. And the speakers of error are even often more respected than the speakers of truth. And that makes sense because, you see, they fit in with the popular consensus. They fit in with the culture of the day. Paul valued the the Galatians' friendship. And he would do anything to encourage their continued respect and goodwill. But Paul was not about to compromise the truth of the living God to keep on their good side. And neither should we ever. Verse 17. They zealously court you, but notice, for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. They zealously court you, Paul said. This simply means it, it's, a show of, it's a show of passion. False teachers and preachers often try to show a lot of love. A lot of interest for the people. Because many people are easily fooled by this kind of affection. You see, a lot of people look at at feelings and emotions and passion and love over truth. Paul shows the purpose of this show of affection by by these false teachers. They want to exclude you. They They wanted to exclude them from all other teaching. You see, when teaching is hard and teaching is truth and teaching convicts us and doesn't make us feel good and then somebody else is preaching say, oh, you're wonderful people. You, you know, you're good at heart. You're good and, 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 and God loves you, you know, in the state that you're in and, and even though, you're, though you know, you know you're, you're messing up. Well, hey, that sounds great. I like that sound too. So Paul's speaking truth, speaking truth, The false teachers are speaking love, which, again, love is necessary, but, again, not compromising over sin. Well, you're going to be drawn to that, 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 those nice words, those comforting words, rather than the convicting words. Paul shows, again, the purpose, and he says, because they want to exclude you. They want to exclude you uh, from all other teaching and bring you over to theirs. They only, want to get, hear you, they only want to give you acceptable teaching because error is always trying to take over teaching. Like the evolutionists, they try hard to make teaching creation forbidden in our schools. False teachers want to build a following. They didn't want anyone to follow Paul. And the fully display of their affection, you know, it's like many people who want to draw a following. Politicians, false teachers, preachers. They often want a following, but it's not to help people. It's to gain a following and popularity. Verse 18. But it is good to be zealous, notice, in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. So Paul wouldn't be accused of jealousy by attacking his critics' uh, false show of affection. Paul says, look, showing affection is not a bad thing in itself. It doesn't have to be done just when I'm around. Paul isn't saying, though, you don't have to love just me. Look at verse 19. 
My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Paul tells his allegory to the Galatians here, believing uh, believers by using this tender expression, my little children. This means born ones, those who are born again. Paul has a very tender heart and he compares himself to a mother. Verse 20. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have doubts about you. Paul wanted to be there with him so that he could speak differently. He was very concerned about these people. He'd been using strong language in his letter, but you can see his tender heart here. Verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? He says, you guys who who want to be under, do you hear what the law is asking of you? Paul looks for another way to deal with this subject. He's He's tried warning them. He's tried threats. He's tried sarcasm, logic, and pleading. Now he's taken them to Sinai and to Calvary. He's, re- he's reviewed related matters of history. Now he tries allegory. They were so attached to the law of Moses, most of the, uh, and most of the Bible was the law. But if you don't teach the word soundly, you will lead the innocent to think that the law still applied, not only as a standard, but also as a system. The Galatians felt that they knew the scriptures. And yet you can't discern, he said, between law and grace. You guys say you know the Bible, but you don't know the difference between law and grace. You seem so excited to burden yourselves with Moses and the law. Do you know what you're doing? He says, so let me give you an illustration of what you're doing. Let me take you back to the old Bible story you're all familiar with and show you what you're planning to do. Abraham had two wives, Hagar and Sarah. One, one by, uh, had, he had two wives and one son by each wife, Ishmael and Isaac. And it was no accident. It wasn't an accident that they came from such different backgrounds and that Abraham married them in, order that, in the order that he did under the circumstances he did and that the sons turned out the way they did. None of it was an accident. Moses didn't know anything about the deep spiritual lesson about the story that he would record about Hagar and Sarah and Ishmael and Isaac. But the Holy Spirit did. Look at verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. Abraham's wife, Sarah, couldn't have children, which Abraham wanted and God promised to Abraham. Sarah had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Now, the laws of Canaan at that time were socially acceptable and legally valid for a barren woman to marry her bond slave to her husband. And then, when the bond slave's son was born, to regard it as hers by proxy. So again, the laws, it was legal for that woman who couldn't have children to marry her, her, her slave servant there, the slave woman, to her husband, gets pregnant by her husband, and then when the baby's born, now she takes it back by proxy. So this is what Sarah did. And Sarah, as a result, Hagar gave birth to a son named Ishmael. But the moment Hagar knew that she was pregnant, she couldn't resist the temptation to look down on Sarah 
because it was, a, it was just a, a really demeaning thing for a woman who couldn't have children at this time. And so when Hagar got pregnant and knew Sarah couldn't have children, she just began to just, you know, irritate and aggravate poor Sarah. Again, the, the, Hagar couldn't resist the temptation to look down on Sarah and taunt her, making her life miserable. And then when Israel was born, I'm sorry, when Ishmael was born, he quickly endeared himself, you know, to, to his father Abraham. Abraham would have been totally satisfied if God had approved of this, and, and this uh, questionable arrangement, and accepted Ishmael as a child of promise, but this wasn't what was to be. And when the time was right, even though Sarah was way past her childbearing years, she miraculously gave birth to Isaac which was the child of promise. This was the child that God promised Abraham. So the typological lesson here is easy to see. Verse 23. But he who was of the bondwoman, speaking of Ishmael, was born according to the flesh because it wasn't a thing of God. It was something that was arranged by Sarah and Hagar and, and Abraham. So she, uh, Ishmael wasn't born according to the flesh and of the free woman through promise. So Ishmael was born as a result of Abraham's fleshly behavior. Ishmael's birth involved no faith. He was the fruit of fleshly behavior and worldly ways. Nor was there anything supernatural about Ishmael's birth. He was produced in the work of the flesh by the ordinary working of the laws of nature. Anybody can produce an Ishmael. Today, our churches are full of them. But with Isaac's birth, everything was different. Both Abraham and Sarah were too old to have children. So Isaac's birth was supernatural. Faith believed God, and God worked the miracle. So Isaac was born of faith and was the child of promise, of which God told Abraham earlier on, you're going to have a son. Romans 4, 19-22, Paul said, And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, speaking of Abraham, already dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver. Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that God, what God had promised, he was also able to, be, to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him, Abraham, for righteousness. Look at verse 24 through 25. Which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants, the, the, uh, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this, is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which, is now, which now is and is in bondage with her children. So Paul draws the parallel in these two verses. Hagar represents Mount Sinai, where the Mosaic Covenant was decreed. Hagar, Mount Sinai, Jerusalem, the world center of Judaism, bondage and legalism, and the flesh, Paul tied them all together. Verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. The Jerusalem above is the new Jerusalem that will come down uh, explained there in Revelation chapter 20. It comes down from heaven. comes down uh, from God out of heaven. Old Jerusalem is the mother city of those under the law. So the new Jerusalem is the mother city of the believer under grace. 
The believer neither here nor hereafter has any connection with legalism. Verse 27, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. So, this new Jerusalem, okay, that, that's going to be coming down from God in heaven, representing the, the, the new covenant, and then the Old Testament, uh, again, um, the old Jerusalem representing the law. All right? Verse 27 here is a quote from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. The seed of Abraham were many, and it came from Sarah, who was considered barren. But this seed, it came by promise, which represents the gospel. So grace will produce better than the law. Now, in this allegory, Paul is saying that God is saving, God is saving under grace more members of the human family than he ever saved under the Mosaic law through the sacrificial system. The gospel brings joy. The law brought fear. And this joy is not limited to joy on earth among the saved, but salvation also brings joy in heaven. Verse 28. Now we, brethren, as, I, as Isaac was our now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. So believers today are also children of promise. Our birth is a new birth. We're born again. That comes about by our believing God's promise. And God said if we trust him, we will be born again. Verse 29. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit... Even so, it is now. This is a reference to Genesis chapter 21, verse 9, which reports Ishmael's mocking of Isaac. The flesh doesn't praise the Spirit. And those who would mix grace and law mocked Paul and others who preached the true gospel message. The practice of the flesh persecuting the Spirit is still happening, Paul said, even so it is now. And believers will be persecuted by unbelievers. The gospel of grace will be mocked. It will be attacked by those who would insist that works are involved in salvation. Verse 30. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So God commanded Hagar and her son to be sent away. Today, God is saying to you and to me, get rid of your legalism. Get rid of your works. Put all the emphasis on Jesus Christ. Verse 31. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So it's those who come by faith in Christ who are represented by Isaac. The law doesn't rep represent anyone except those under bondage. So mixing law and grace, or law and, uh, faith in law, is a contradiction. There are two separate, they are two separate and very different things. Abraham couldn't have both the son of Hagar and the son of Sarah living together because the flesh and the spirit can't dwell together. Abraham had to make a choice. And Paul is saying that you can't be saved by law and grace either. You have to make a choice. If you try to be saved by grace and by law, you are not saved. So in closing, 
The question is, have you really trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation? Or do you feel like you're doing something or being something or trying to accomplish something that adds to what Jesus did for you on the cross? If you do, forget it. Look to Jesus alone and receive everything from him. He alone is our Savior and our Lord. And he's to receive all praise, all honor, and all glory because we are complete in him. Father, we thank you for this informative chapter, Lord, and and all that it says and all that it teaches, Lord. And Father, we pray that those here, Father, have made that commitment to you, Lord, and have made Jesus Christ their son, their, their savior, and their master. And if not, that the Spirit would lead them to confess their sins, to seek forgiveness for their sins from Jesus Christ, and to be filled with the Spirit, and to follow Jesus Christ all the days of their life. And Christ will come in in the person of the Holy Spirit and begin to instruct them to leave the sinful pleasures of life and to choose the right way of life. So, Father, we thank you. We give you praise, honor, and glory. And we pray now that you would just bless our time in communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time, brother.